me pones un, un épocas. Si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk. Real people. Real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker Movement with another amazing show for you this afternoon. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because we as people, too often we were labeled and overlooked. But that is no longer. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. We have a great show in line for you today. We have Dr. Regina Griego. She, after retiring from a distinguished career as an engineer, began coaching. She's an author and speaker. She was born and raised in New Mexico, and her Hispanic roots go back 400 years. She also has Native American roots, which she respects, adores, and stands true. She is married with six children in a blended family and has seven beautiful grandchildren. Regina has mentored many people as a professor, senior engineer, and leadership coach. She's an activist for gun safety and juvenile justice and an advocate for women in leadership. Regina is a Georgetown-trained coach and a fellow of the INCOS, the Large International System Engineering Profession Organization. She remains active in INCOS, primarily mentoring and working with young people. She holds a PhD, MS and BS in electrical and computer engineering and an MS in computer science. Above all, she loves her family and stands true to her Latin roots, which we love and respect. Dr. Griego, welcome. Hi, how are you? Well, it is a pleasure having you on our show. And I know that when we first began to have our initial conversations, I was moved and I know that our listeners will be touched and greatly inspired by the work that you've done. Tell us a little bit about what you are working on lately and tell us what you're up to. Well, um, I'm speaking out primarily for gun safety and for juvenile justice. Um, this happened after the tragedy in my family, which I wrote the book about, uh, Sins of the System, uh, Trauma Guns, Tragedy and the Betrayal of Our Children. And this was a story that had to come out for me because for healing, descanso, understand the term descanso, it means to you know put it down, to pin it to the page so it's not in my head, mm -hmm. and also for social change. And um, as a result of, of the experience with my family, which I could, I could tell you about, um, the, I become a real advocate in juvenile justice having gone through uh, seven years in the court systems with my nephew and then um, gun safety because uh, the tragedy was primarily in my mind um, or let's just say it, I believe my family would be alive if it weren't for the guns. There was uh, eight guns and two of them were AR-15s in my brother's house and that's what my nephew used uh, to kill the family. So. Could you tell us a little bit about that January 2013 time, if you can? Yeah, um, the the book is written about uh, something that happened in 
in later January in 2013, we got a phone call at one in the morning and it was my um, brother's, my niece, my brother's uh, sister, uh, my brother's daughter uh, who lived in California. And she said, uh, she asked us if, if the family was dead, was it true? Because she saw it on Facebook mm. and uh, which is crazy. And, um, and oh, through the course of the night, we figured out that yes, um, my, my brother, his wife, and three of our uh, of his kids were dead. Uh, two nieces who were six and two, and a um, nephew who was nine years old. And uh, it turns out their fifteen-year-old son did the killing. And um, this my nephew uh, basically suffered from a a mental break. It was called um, uh, trauma-induced schizoaffective disorder with uh, uh, severe depression mm -hmm. and the um, he was operating with the brain of a 13 year old because his dad had knocked him out at age 11 and um, that was part of it but also he stopped getting um, he was homeschooled but he's they stopped teaching him at third grade mm -hmm. and um, the reason why this kid did that is basically to try to escape his situation and um, I'm pretty convinced that my brother had both PTSD and a TBI as well. Um, he was the pastor at the largest evangelical church in, in um, Albuquerque and had lost his job the previous um, 10 months prior to this event. And um, things really took a turn for the worse in that family. But there was a lot going on with my brother and my nephew in terms of you know, him teaching him how to be a so soldier and my brother believing that he was going to have to take on the U.S. military, I mean, the um, U.S. government. Mm -hmm. So it was a very uh, complicated story that I didn't learn the entire truth. But my reaction was, you know, this is, I mean, we saw nothing in this kid to indicate, you know, he had no uh, substance abuse issues, never been uh, arrested. He was very controlled by his father. So I immediately reached out and then became his guardian. And as a result, support had supported him through his entire uh, time in um, the juvenile system through the trials. And then of course, to get his mental health taken care of and his educational needs taken care of. And to this day, I communicate with him once a week and I send him money and everything. You know, first of all, we apologize for having a have you share that story yet for the, I don't know how many times you've had to share this, but I think that the work is necessary because uh, as you and I began our initial conversation, your work is now focused on that. Mm -hmm. And you have dedicated, aside from the engineer piece, working on these systemic issues. But before we get to that, can you tell me a little bit about your site? It's so beautiful, Transcending Futures. What does that mean to you? Why Transcending Futures? Well, you know, I grew up in Barelas, which is the oldest uh, barrio in um, Albuquerque. And um, I had no clue what an engineer was. My family to this day, probably a lot of them don't know what an engineer is. Uh, so it's not a matter of progressing or transforming because you start with nothing and not knowing, you know, where you're going. So 
for a lot of people in situations where you're in a body or in a situation where you don't have a lot of people like my dad and his entire family, he had 10 siblings. Well, there were 10 of them all together. None of them graduated from high school. And then uh, my mom barely graduated from high school after um, ha having uh, gotten pregnant and basically being forced to marry the man who was much older than her. But she returned to high school and she raised the set, uh, the four of us uh, as a secretary. You know, when I graduated from high school, she was earning $7,800 for a whole year, raising four kids by herself. And so the visibility I had on the world, because, you know, we come from family, you know, been here forever, mostly farmers before, you know, before they moved into the city, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so for me, transcending futures means seeing beyond what we can currently see, you know, in terms of the future. So much of today is dystopic. It's, it's like humans can imagine the worst better than they can imagine the best. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it involves imagination. Where can we be in the future that we transcend what we experience now? The things, the kinds of systems, the kind of breakdowns, the kind of discrepancies, the kind of, you know, um, you know, poverty and, and discrimination that, that we, what can, what can be a future? The only, the only show that I ever see on, seen on television, and I loved it since I was a kid, was Star Trek that they gave you some vision of a, a more, and I don't want to say utopic because a lot of people, you know, that's not a, a word, but a better future. And I think we need to create that for our kids. And for me, it was a, it was um, a question of faith. When somebody offered me something, a door opened for me, I walked through it. I had no clue where I was going, what the next step would be. But each time somebody offered me like professors or, or um, teachers that said, you know, like I got into a program when I was in high school at Sandia National Laboratories for um, teaching you a little bit about engineering in 10th grade. No clue, but I, I joined the program. You know, the teacher recommended me because I was, uh, you know, um, did my, I was being raised by my mom and I had some aptitude in math and math really saved me in terms of my life and also going to school and getting uh, school lunches. But the idea of transcending is there's many kids that can't imagine a, a reality other than what they experience day to day. And we've got to help them and create imagination for something that's so much better for our world for them and for for their future and for the world and uh, that's what i i see as transcending we have to transcend our current reality uh, especially the negative elements of it well i don't want to get too much into the relationship between you and your nephew to be respectful but i do want to understand how difficult was that for you after hearing what had taken place, walk us through the step. What did you do next? Like, did you just say, I need to step in here and, and just help this kid? Or was it something that your family went against you? What, what were the channels here? Well, that night when we found it, you know, he actually committed the murders in the early mornings of uh, Saturday morning. And we didn't find out about it till, like I said, one in the morning on a Sunday morning, because he went off to the church 
and hung out by himself and with his friends. And then um, that, but after we found out that he was the one that did it and that he was in, in, in the sheriff's office and that he was gonna be taken to the juvenile detention. And first of all, my brother uh, and I um, were shocked that they didn't invite any family to come when they were interrogating him. Mm. And um, it, this is a hundred pound kid, a hundred pound kids, like five, seven. And he was being interrogated by two, you know, pretty large strapping officers and they Mirandized him. He hadn't slept in two days. Um, in, in our minds, he was not, you know, we see this all the time in the communities that we're in, you know, that he is not going to be given a fair shot, especially if they just isolate him like that. Now, and they, it was clear to me when I visited him, I, I got to visit him the next day on a, on a Monday, but you know, that his, that his brain was not the same, that something had happened, that he had meant some mental break because he was making up all kinds of silly stuff, you know? And um, anyway, it, it, you know, I, I thought about everybody that could be his guardian because they asked us, you know, who, who's going to be his guardian. And my sister was uh, going to be leaving town. His, his older sisters were in California and Arizona. And I just said, you know, that, it, it, you know, it had to be me, you know, and, and I, and I loved this kid, you know, and I loved my brother very, very much. And so, um, and I knew that the system wouldn't do him well, you know, I knew if he st had to stand alone that, you know, and that that was the case, even so they, you know, they dealt him wrong in the end, but um, yeah, so I just started seeing him and trying to figure out what was going on in his mental health. Mm -hmm. trying to get him help. I fought to get him into a, an adolescent treatment center. He went from third grade. He, he jumped four grades in the period of 19 months mm. in that place. Um, the kid, you know, wasn't well nourished. Like I said, he was a hundred pounds. Um, so for me, it was an act of love to him, but more than that, my brother. And I knew immediately that something would, was gone, had gone wrong because I knew my brother, I knew all that he had gone through. So that's one of the things about the book that I had to do. And in some ways it outed me um, in terms of the way I grew up because I was trying to show the tra generational trauma. So, mm -hmm. you know, I talk about my dad and, you know, my grandparents and I talk about, you know, my brother and all that he went through. And then, and then I get to, to my nephew. And so that's the problem in these communities and a lot of families, you know, and, and it's normalized, you know, as it, at least in our culture here in New Mexico, you know, men are tough and, you know, they could be beat by their fathers or whatever, and they're not going to say anything about it and they're not going to get help usually, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so for me, it was about saving this one child. And for me, it almost became a tether to my brother. My nephew became a tether to my brother, you mm. know, and uh, a sense of, you know, we lost five, we can't lose six, you know. You know, there is an uncommon language that we Latinos have. Um, you know, there is the, the 
family tree, if you will. There's the mom and then there's the aunt. And that tia is always recognized as that second in line. And, you know, shout out to you for stepping up to do that. But believe that the work that you laid out not only helped him transcend, but I think that it also spoke to other Latina women who quite often have to go through similar things. How to focus when you're not involved in any crime. Sometimes you're just walking. You're, you're getting stopped at a traffic light. But the main thing that I know is that I know that we feel marginalized. Wearing hoodies is something that I always do to represent the culture and the people that I am from. So I want to, again, lift up your work because I know that it's important not only for the family, but for the other parents that you are continuously helping with this. I wanted to ask your book, Sins of the System, and, you know, tragedy and betrayal. There there, are heavy language and words in here. What, what stemmed this for you and where are you with that now? Well, the sins of the system, that's what I'm fighting. You know, I won an international book award on social change because the fourth, the 40th, the last chapter was on all the systems that failed this family, failed my nephew mm -hmm. and fail many families. So the sins of the system, I feel like there's a lot of systemic things that hit, impact worse people that are marginalized, you know, and then um, trauma because of the generational trauma guns because of the, the the role that the guns played mm -hmm. tragedy of course this was a horrible tragedy and that's the thing that bothered me at the beginning is that you know some of the family took the um stance of of if you're supporting my brother uh greg then you're against my nephew and if you're supporting my nephew then you're against my brother and, and i just that did not compute for me you know, it was a tragedy. What happened was a tragedy that this that this family experienced, and it and it comes not just it, it comes down in that way not just for them, but it has history to it. You know, and there's other things in the family that happened, but not to this magnitude. And then the betrayal of our children is, I mean, how can you live in a country where the number one killer of children is guns and not do anything or still support more guns, more lethal guns. You know, I mean, how, what kind of adult mind thinks that way? Because we are losing our babies. We are losing our children in needless ways. Not only, not only because they die or get wounded or, you know, affects their whole life, but then, you know, many of them are lost in the juvenile systems. And the juvenile systems are hard in general, but they're particularly hard on Hispanics and brown people. And you were talking about, you know, profiling. That was a big part of my, you know, I'm, you know, it's the luck of the draw in terms of genetics. I'm more lighter, lighter collect, complected, but my sister, one of my sisters and one of my, and my brother who passed were dark complected and he would get stopped and harassed and asked for, you know, if he was, um, uh, what you would call it, a wet back, you know, coming across from, from the Mexican border and, and, and harassed and things like that a lot. And this, and it, it was a bitterness that he, he lived with most of his life. And I honestly believe that we cannot continue to betray our children 
by having guns accessible to them and then by being horribly punitive. It's interesting that the people that support tough on crime are the same ones that want to proliferate guns, you know? Mm -hmm. This is a very touchy subject, of course, but let's just touch base here from CNN. There have been 58 school shootings in the United States in 2023 alone. College campuses, K through 12 schools, 28 people have died. More than 67 people have been injured. Now, a lot has been said to the pandemic that during the pandemic, there was a major decline in gun violence on school grounds. Now the pandemic is over. We see some of this. And look, Washington has the highest rates with five total shootings. Texas had the most overall with 50 school shootings. Now we can talk about Robb Elementary in 2008, where 19 students and two educators lost their lives. But it sounds too familiar. And I'm in the education system. When the word lockdown even happens, and I work in Connecticut, which is clear that Sandy Hook had taken place here. So we are often reminded of this. And I, and I work and I, and I know colleagues who have been impacted by this. One of the teachers has a street named on near where I live for standing in the way to sacrifice herself to save students. It is a difficult topic, obviously, to talk about. But what do you think schools need to do that they are not doing now that could probably help this situation? Well, one of the things that I say is that the children are the canary in the coal mine of the families and the community. That's where you start to see whether a community or our family aren't doing well. So uh, the school system, I think for a lot of kids, certainly for me, was a salvation in my growing up. And we need to put more counselors and more um, try to use, you know, accessible social workers that connect potentially families to social services. There's a lot of social services out there, but not a lot of families. Now, I know that that was the case for my mom. I didn't get my teeth first looked at till I was 17. It's because I found someplace myself that did it for mm -hmm. free in the community. And so we've got to get families what they need, you know, with today's economy and everything like that. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of jobs, but there's not a lot of good paying jobs, especially if you don't, you know, uh, have the right, you know, credentials or whatever. But the point being is that children, when you, when they get in trouble, when, when you see, you know, you know, and you can, pick out certain behaviors that makes you think that this kid, you know, whether they're showering, you know, whether they come together, come in the same clothes every day, things like that. Kids need to be watched. And, and, and if they get in trouble with the law, there should be a social worker sitting there with the police with them, not, mm -hmm. not, you know, trying to send somebody to jail all the time because, mm -hmm. you know, kids act out because of what's going on normally in their family or the community. And if not, then it's 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 some sort of um, some other you know um, community that they're getting engaged with, or they've got mental health issues. And so, I really believe that we need to be more present for our children. And I know that there's a lot of you know I, I applaud you know our governor who has you know increased the pay of our teachers, 
and um, also is, uh, you know, we got free um, preschool here now and uh, there's subsidized daycare and because she's putting a lot of effort on the children, which is great, but counselors instead of people that know how to gun fire guns. And it, to me, it's, it's a matter of preventing these kinds of things and, and, and making sure a child is cared for rather than, um, you know, after, you know, after things have gone so terribly wrong, you know. We often talk about this during our meetings about the needs of what we can do. And quite often in our schools, all over the world, you know, kids are using language that's inappropriate. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to do this. And these threats have to all be taken seriously. And many a times this may lead to a DCF call. This may lead to something that is preventive. But I believe that this is important, not only as a mandated reporter, but I also believe that we're trying to save lives. And you and you touched on some things there because attendance seems to be one of the norms. You know, transportation, maybe basic needs, or there's some things that are lacking. But then you start seeing the behaviors come out in frustration when a child can't understand a topic, can't really interact with peers a certain way. And these flags usually come up early and often. So I do believe that working with children closer and united is a very important point and one that should be looked upon because I do think that the children to some degree, whether we know it or not, or believe it or not, they continuously are having many things being fed to them, whether it is technology, whether it is COVID, and now it's not COVID. It's a lot of confusion for them. And I think that pouring in more of these resources does make a lot of sense. Now, when you talk about systems, and I know that your engineer background, and we're going to touch on that, your call to action since 2013, what does that look like? Well, the two fronts and, the, you know, 80% of the royalties from the books are going to the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth and then every town for gun safety. Those are the two ones I'm emphasizing right now. Now, I, I do want to get a hold of a, of a senator or a congressman that, that can do something about the homeschool problem. But for now, I'm working um, juvenile justice. And what we did this last year, we finally passed after five years, four or five years that we've been working at it, mm -hmm. a law, it's called the Second Chances Law. So my nephew, after, you know, initially he was going to be released at 21. And, and then as we were preparing to get him, you know, because we were going to take him in, we were actually going to take him to a different state and all this kind of stuff. I timed my retirement and everything for this. And then there was an appeal. And um, a lot of drama around the appeal, but the end game was that they sentenced him to life plus seven years in mm -hmm. prison. And the rationale of the judge was, well, since you guys said, uh, you know, he's a medium risk, if I let him go now, he's a low risk if we can get him somewhere for another five years, you know, like getting more help for another five years. But he's a high risk if we even put him in prison. So we have to keep him in prison for life. Mm. That was the rationale because once you're 21, you age out of the juvenile system. So they have nowhere to put you as a juvenile offender. And um, so he was going to his first, like 
you know, he and I, he had this discussion actually last Sunday. He says, well, how come my release date says 25-25? And I says, because you don't have a release date. Mm. I says, you, your first shot at parole is when you're 52. That was going to be the way it was. But the second chances bill we passed, who it affects about 80, maybe closer to 90 now that I, I remember, because they're finding more people. Because that's the other thing is they have a lot of these kids that are unaccounted when they send them out of other states. Mm. But um, now he'll get a shot at parole uh, 22 years earlier when he's 30. And that's four and a half years. And we're working on preparing him for that. And that just means he gets to go before the parole board. Doesn't guarantee that he's going to get out. But think about it. If you're a kid and you're put in there when you're 16, 17, in his case, he was 21. How, how much hope do you have if the first shot, I mean, these kids can't comprehend 52. Do you remember thinking about being 52 when you're, or when you were 18, 19 years old, it just feels like forever. You have no hope. You know, nothing to strive for, you know, and a lot of these kids will end up committing suicide in prison, you know, and so that that's the bill that we pass. So if you, you know, under most offenses, you'll get a shot 15 years after after you've been, you know, from the time of the offense. Um, there's a couple of, of circumstances where you'll it'll be 20 years if it's willful murder, first degree multiple crimes, it'd be 25 years. But nonetheless, you know, children change, their brains completely change. And you probably know this from, from you know, uh, the age 20, 18 to the age 25, there's a, you know, huge, you know, they grow their, you know, finish growing their frontal lobes. Mm-hmm. Um, and for trauma, trauma, children that have experienced trauma, it's even later than that, that their brains are fully matured. But that's the that those are the two main things I, t- I talked about the child access law and we are still trying to we're also trying to raise the minimum age and um do the waiting period 14-day waiting period and there's um a number of other things that we're working on also you know uh, police kind of um due diligence or you know transparency around what happens with police and these gun shoot you know in these shootings you know well, we're sending positive energy to you and to the people who are sitting on the table with you um, because it's a matter of perspectives, but people understanding what it is to really first survive that, live through that, and now have to be guilty of that for so many years without knowing when there is an end to this. It's solely, solely a difficult thing. And for us, again, the minorities, we continuously are faced with a multitude of no's and I don't know, and you don't qualify. Mm-hmm. So again, positive energy to you and to the people who are trying to do that. I usually talk about modeling for students early, whether they have situations of undeveloped or untreated trauma, modeling, you know, using mentors. Many of our children have been exposed to many different traumas, mm-hmm. and some of them are direct. Mm-hmm. physical, verbal. Um, there is so much that we can talk about, but using that positive provoking where people can help connect to systems, you know, people like yourself, a therapist, a family member, 
an organization that can step in and donate an hour, donate two hours. I remember when I was growing up, I was able to play games in our neighborhood where cars would drive up in Washington Heights and we would play skellies and off the wall. And we had that peer to peer, you know, we had that development kind of happen because in the block that I, that I grew up, we were able to play these games together and Mm -hmm. the friends that I still have, they're family members. And we learned by working with one another and we had each other to mentor and to peer. But now these kids don't have that. I seldom see any kids having an opportunity to play outside. These programs are super expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to call any names out, but they're like $250 a month. Mm -hmm. And after school care is not free. So there's a lot of things that we have to worry about when we're talking about budgeting. I don't want to even start telling you about how expensive the rent is here but nevertheless we're just faced with a multiple you know kind of issues that are coming at us you know when you are working as a coach and you're working with clients that are in similar situations that are they have either been impacted by violence or are traumatized by it how are you handling these sort of cases and how can you separate your work from what you are dealing with Well, let me start by just uh, responding a little bit to what you say. You know, the sad thing is that the community and the society pays a bunch of money to clean up after these situations like what happened to my nephew. You know, the lawyers, the, you know, the court, the, you know, the juvenile uh, system, and then the number of people incarcerated. So we're the thing that drives me crazy about our society is we'd rather put our money there than the prevention. That's what seems to be the case, you know, which really is, is not a systems way of thinking, you know, but yeah, um, I'm a survivor membership lead for New Mexico chapter of moms demand action, which is um, under the umbrella of the every town for gun safety organization. And um, which is an organization that was founded by mayors and governors and and they're the kind of the the umbrella they have other things like you know demand a seat where they try to support gun sense candidates and whatnot but in my little role here in new mexico i um you know basically have meetings every month with survivors of gun violence and survivors are you know people that have been you know lost somebody or um or you know wounded or victims of have been threatened with a gun themselves there's there's a number of of um you know definition for the survivors and you know the the stories are just heartbreaking and the mo- the most you can do one of the things that a lot of us feel is that you know you guys are just stuck on the past or you're stuck in your story and that kind of stuff and we just provide a safe environment to talk about you know, their story, but also the, you know, the, the, the legal aftermath, you know, with, and trying to figure out what went on when they lost a son or a daughter or, um, you know, interacting with the police to try to figure out, you know, the, you know, just trying to get closure on what happened in their circumstances. So we share a lot in this environment and there's a, a survivor network that every town has 
and it's a larger organization that you can participate in grief uh, um, uh, groups that are basically teaching about grief and all that kind of stuff. But my ultimate goal is to get, to turn the hurt and the anger and the anguish to action. And we do this by training survivors how to testify at the legislature, to give them opportunities to tell their story at rallies, in meetings, um, to the Democratic platform party, you know, whatever we can, because, you know, I'm sure you've had trauma in your life. If you just sit with that trauma, it damages your nervous system more and more and more and who you are changes, you know, if you can turn that grief into action, then it's much more powerful and you can heal. And that's why I wrote this book in the first, one of the reasons, there's two reasons, like I said, it, I couldn't tell the story because it was so complicated. I, it, I couldn't put it in two bullets or three bullets, right? So it was to tell the story and to pin it to the page of this Ganso. And then also for social change, because I wanted their deaths to mean something, you know, to, to, you know, that some good would come out of it. And that's what we kept saying to ourselves as a family. I hope some good comes out of this, you know, and that's the, what I would, I would tell other people that have experienced some amount of trauma is to turn that trauma into action. You know, you have to take a step back when you don't feeling, you know, when you're not, you know, when you're not in a space where you can give, but certainly even if it is to share with, with, you know, other people that have experienced the same. I mean, that's, you know, you taught, you taught, you out, you know, you were talking about communities have so much change. You know, my grandmother lived next to us. I had like 30 some cousins that were around every weekend almost. And we would go out and play, you know, um, in the streets, you know, ball and, you know, um, all kinds of things. And we'd do every Easter together, every, you know, uh, July 4th, go to the mountains here at Sandy um, Mountains. And um, that's different. And when people ask me, what would you have done different in terms of the family? As I'd say, I, I would say I'd spend more time on other people's couches. Because when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time on my aunt's couches, on my grandma's couches, on my, you know, Theo, in my Theo's house, that kind of stuff. And we don't do that anymore. We have to make appointments with people. You know what I mean? It's crazy, but community, even within families, doesn't exist the same the same as it did before. And we're becoming more isolated. And I think the isolation is felt large acutely by children because a lot of us adults have some, you know, outlet and um, and or we're, you know they're developing and they need kids, you know, they need other kids in their environment. And um, so, yeah, the working with survivors is, is for me a calling in the sense that, you know, holding, holding the pain, holding my own pain is something that I, I feel like I've been prepared for since I was a kid, you know, because of what I've been through and because I've learned how to, to, you know, discharge the trauma and discharge the grief and discharge a lot of the, um, and so 
being there for other people is important to me, you know, uh, no matter what their situation is and what their story is. And, and, you know, the mom's group, uh, when I first became a part of them, I was initially afraid they were going to judge me because I was supporting my nephew. And, you know, the woman that I talked to, she's, there's no judgment. Everybody's story's different, you know? You know, Again, big up to the Latino families and big up to us because tradition does ring true. But I, I, I'm also under the impression that we are continuously shifting. When we enter this country, I've, I had a previous show we were talking about when our students come from our countries and they enter here into the education system, there is so much that comes with that. We no longer have the same holidays. We don't have the same traditions that we had in our countries. And when we are here, we have a month. Like right now, it just so happened to be Latino Heritage Month. So we just have usually what people bring out, let's just cook. This is what represents the Latino. And I don't think that that's true. I think that there is so much that we do besides food. And that's one of my fights because I always say that we're more than just doing the things that others cannot do. And when I and when I look at this work, I'm trying to figure out, can you tell me a little bit about you and engineer? I mean, women in engineering. It even sounds different, but please tell us what are you doing in this work and how are you helping women get involved in this? Well, through my professional society, I'm I'm actually the one that heads up our mentoring um, service that we offer. And the title is assistant director of mentoring for the INCOSI. And basically the idea is to set up, you know, um, you know, more senior um, people that were more senior in their career with younger people. And, um, and, you know, of course that involves, you know, bringing in people in general and it's men and women, but, you know, obviously I have a, a particular affinity to trying to help the women and bring more of them into that. But I also do ICEF, and uh, it's the International Science and Engineering Fair, which is the, you know, the pinnacle of a science fair. And I, we give special awards for people that uh, that that do systems work. You know, that whatever their project was in the science fair, it was more systems. They the approach they took was systems uh, oriented, and I. I can't tell you if there's one place that I would send anybody to give hope for the future, it would be there. Mm -hmm. um, and we always, um, you know, like uh, this last time uh, was the first time I saw a young woman who was from the, from sorry, the Navajo Nation is part of, uh, part of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that a, a young lady did a science fair project that we judged from the Navajo Nation. Mm. And it's just such a privilege to talk to them and to hear their ideas and to encourage them to keep going and all of that kind of stuff. Because, because you know, one of the criteria, because I run the whole thing and I developed criteria by which we judge these kids and everything. And one of them is impact. And I remember thinking about impact and it's like, 95% of the native people in the Americas were wiped out. Talk about a genocide. They were wiped out. You know what I mean? And to think of, of moving and giving more power to the to remaining native people is such a big deal to me, you know? And um, 
And there's a film that I love. It's called uh, Stand and Deliver. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that movie. And one of the things that stuck with me, because I, you know, I watched it probably not too long after it came out, is that um, math is the great equalizer. And it's because I love math, obviously, but mm -hmm. you have technical skills and you can go far. You know, you just can. Doesn't matter what your color is, you know, it doesn't matter. And these kids are mostly color, you know, mostly color. You know, I, I will say a large number of them are, are Indian or um, also Chinese and are of Asian descent. But there's a lot of, you know, you know, Hispanics, um, just, you know, it's, it's international. And uh, just talking to these kids and the kinds of things they care about and the one they're working on is exciting to me, extremely exciting. So those are two of the things that I do. I'm always writing um, and in, in uh, panels about women. And, and um, my next book actually is a memoir on my career, you know, being, being raised. I mean, you, you look at the, the examples in Stand and Deliver. My mom didn't even know <laughs> what I was doing, you know, <laughs> and couldn't, couldn't even comprehend the why I cared about computers, you know. <laughs> So we plan to have your book, obviously can't wait for that second one, but we're going to have your book on our website. I know many listeners are going to be moved and touched. You are an incredible woman. I really am floored by your ability to work nonstop, continuously pushing the envelope. And now I'm getting a better feel of that transcending future and what it really means. You got to put up and do the work to make this happen. Uh, what do you do for self-care? You seem to always be busy. What are, what are things that you do to take care of self? Well, one of my biggest joys, obviously, is my grandkids. You know, spending any time with them, you know, takes, takes, take, it's, it makes me very light and, and, and I, I love them. And, um, and then I have their pictures flashing across my phone, my computer nonstop. Um, and besides that, you know, I walk a lot. Nature is a big deal for me. It's, you know, that's part of my, you know, you talk about the complexity of Hispanic, but part of the, you know, the native people too is, is how much nature means to me. And, the, you know, this land is my land. This New Mexico land is my land. And um, so we, we live about a half mile from the Bosque, which is the, the land that, that follows our Rio Grande. Mm -hmm. And um, so my, I walk three, four miles a day uh, along the Bosque and then um, try to get into the mountains on occasion. So those are those are big ones. I journal. I listen to other uh, stories, you know, on on. Um, by the way, I'm going to do a shout out for you were talking about people from the Im immigrants. There's a great memoir called Solito mm -hmm. that, that I that I love that I, that I'm in the middle of, but, um, yeah. So reading, spending time with my husband, nature, my grandkids, you know, dancing. I forgot. Yeah. I was about to ask. Because you know us, they know us food, dancing and telenovela. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. well, my telenovelas are usually like, uh, Star Trek and things like that. Although, you know, I like some of the other ones, but, um, yeah, I, I, um, danced um as a novice competitively in western and swing but 
I also I'm in ballroom, so you know I love salsa, and I and I did rueda for a while, and um, so you know we've been dancing since we were kids. You know, I mean my mom would play, you know, like um, uh, Trini Lopez and all those kinds of things, and we'd be singing at the top of our lungs, and um, yeah, so dance is a big part of it too. I mean when I'm dancing, it's like the world goes away. You know, mm -hmm. I'm. Just, there you know <laughs> well we use dancing for cleaning you know we drop the salsa we drop some merengue and we start yeah. cleaning and, and, and let the other things happen what yeah. do you want our listeners to know about gun safety because there could be some parents out here who are worried about their child being involved with weapons or not what do you what are some things you can offer for them to understand about this well of course you know if you have guns in your home make sure they're secured if you've got teenagers in your home, don't ever be thinking that, you know, nothing can happen because you told them not to use the guns because that's just not the case. Teenagers are going through a lot. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, suicides happen in an instant when a kid's in a bad place, you know, and you can't get that moment back. You can't say, oh, shoot, I would have put, I wish I would have put that gun away. Do it. You know, and if you don't need the guns, don't keep the guns. You know, it's not like I want to take anybody's guns away, but be responsible with those guns and separate the ammunition from the, the guns themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing is if, if your children are, you know, going to other people's house, make sure you know what's in that other house in terms of guns. You know, if that other family has guns, ask them if they keep them secure. I know that's a hard conversation to have, but that's an important conversation to have because, you know, like I said, you know, I can tell you heartbreaking stories where, you know, this, this uh, young man went over to a friend's house. They were new friends and the mother was already having a sense of not comfortable with this crowd of friends. And then he went over there. Next thing you know, her kid's dead. They say it was an accident, but he was locked in the room with two kids. So who knows what happened exactly? you know, and the police didn't investigate it any further. So it's one of those things where you don't, you will never get that moment back. And if you mm. see your kid operating on a computer, know what they're doing. See if they're ordering guns, you know, check their, you know, have, you know, maybe you have a friend that knows how to check cookies and other things like that on the, on the online. Because in the um, Columbine case, it turns out that kid, even though he was, you know, good, in a good family and everything like that, was ordering guns and then like um, these 3D guns. So some, have awareness of what your kid's up to and never let your kid have a package without you knowing what's in that package, you know, because you just never know the kind of peer pressure they're going through, the kind of things that are going on in their heads. Um, you know, it's just, and you can't get the moment back. I mean, I can't tell you how many parents oh i wish i wouldn't have sent him to that party i wish i could have kept him and as i'm not saying don't do that just investigate a little bit more you know there are some and way too many unfortunate situations and as a parent you do go through these yes no should i do that should i not do that and it is very very tricky what do you want our listeners to get from your book well, I, these things don't happen in a vacuum. There's a lot that goes on to contribute to 
a situation like what happened to our family. You know, there was in um, systems engineering, we call it the Six Sigma cases, and most people know it as the perfect storm, mm -hmm. which means enough things went in the wrong direction for this kid that led to this situation. And um, and the world is complex these days. It's extremely complex. It's extre extremely um, lonely for a lot of these young men. Uh, you talk about, you know, in the past where, you know, you were playing ball and people would come and see if you can get your, especially your young men involved in something positive that they can feel community. Otherwise, you know, they'll be drawn to gangs or militia or feel extremely lonely and desperate get them involved in something. That's what I'm, I'm hoping that they see in this environment. It's not healthy for these young men in particular to just feel lonely. You know? well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that those are great tips. And I'm going to also sadly say that there's a lot of young women also involved now. Uh, girls yeah. also being exposed in different ways. So parents listen in. Dr. Regina Griego, it's just been amazing just having you here, but also listening to your ability to stand tall. We really admire your work and the depth of it. I wanted to ask, I know you mentioned earlier, there was a case that you remember. Is there a case that just wakes you up every day? And you're like, today I'm dedicating this, or my career has been dedicated to this particular person. Are there more clients like that for you? Well, there's a lot of, 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 you know, there's so many teachers that have helped me along the way and mentors and whatnot. But when you said case, you know, a recent case that involves gun violence just resonates to the end uh, because it, it, it's such an emblem of what happens in these cases. You know, it was a, it was a 16 year old that got that 3D printed a, a Glock gun took it to school and then a 14 year old stole it from him. And the 16 year old pinned him against the fence and the kid got away and was running and then turned around and shot the, the, um, the 16 year old. And the next day the headlines read 14 year old obviously doesn't respect life. And I'm like, both families lost their future with their son. Both families were harmed and it was stupid. You know what I mean? Obviously, the kid that died is gone, but now this 14-year-old will live a life that will be unbelievable. And it's like, to me, that's emblematic that we are doing injustice to our children. We have got to stop it. We've got to stop it somehow. That's all I have to say, you know? Well, right now, Dr. Griego, the floor is yours. What do you want our listeners and audience to remember about you and your work and your journey? Are there any things, parting words you want to leave for them? I say the world needs you mostly. Um, get involved no matter at whatever level that you can with your kids' school, PTAs or school boards or because there's a there's a strong movement to take away many of our social services for kids, for families, and we need to have our voice in the mix. You know, it doesn't matter if you've graduated from high school, if you're, you know, like me, uh, you know, have gone to gone on for other education. If you've written anything in your life, just get involved because we, if we don't care, if we don't 
put our voice in the mix. You know, one of the things that drove, drove me crazy in the in the system is that, you know, they'll treat a lot of families that have kids in the system with disdain. But that's not fair. That's not fair at all. Because, you know, you have a voice and you can change the systems that govern your world and, and certainly your children's future. Dr. Gregor, thank you so much. And I want to remind our listeners that yes, we can, and yes, we will. We must continue to use our voices. We must continue to work together. Here we see tragedy become a work of life, a work of flowers being bloomed, but don't forget the thorns. It is still difficult to deal. It is still difficult for us to encounter because grief is not linear. Grief is never going to be parallel and it happens in so many waves and different times that it's difficult to say. And many of us have grief that we can't even say the words we want because that person is no longer here. I wanna remind everyone that this platform was built because way too often we were overlooked as people. We were labeled, but this is no longer. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable will we unite. Tune in friends to another He's Just a Social Worker show coming to a town near you real soon. We out. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you more than just at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa, this is dedicated to you, Mom. Miss you so much. En memoria de mi madre, Matilde De La Rosa, esto va dedicado a ti, Mamá. Te extraño mucho.